You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here, and we believe prayerfully that you are not here by accident, that all of the things that we have sung so far, all of the elements of worship that we have encountered are all part of how God is reaching out to engage and connect with every single one of us. And part of worship is going to God's word here in 2018 to see how God spoke way back then and to ask him to speak to us in the here and now and today in the present tense. Now, those of you who have been around Bethel for a little while know that normatively, we will sort of go to the book of Psalms, the inspired hymn book of our Bible, to really sort of just have a a refreshment and a rejuvenation and uh, a call to worship. And so I'm gonna invite you to turn to the book of Philippians because we're going to go a little bit different this morning. This is usually the part where I tell you, man, I was going to preach a psalm, but the Lord showed up to me in a tortilla or something, and he said, no, I want you, but that's not what happened at all. I've just been thinking about this passage because I've needed this passage, and I love this text, and so I'm going to share this text. One of my high watermark, most favoritist texts in the world. And I'm just going to be completely transparent, as I typically am. This text has been speaking to me powerfully and persistently over the last several weeks and months, and so you just sort of get an invitation behind the curtain. We're going to be in chapter four of the book of Philippians. As I've been dealing with my own circumstance in life, I've also had the opportunity, honor, and privilege to deal with a whole lot of other people's situations of life. And there's been pain, there's been celebration, there's been uncertainty, there's been fear, there's been doubt. And one of the persistent refrains that I hear is, man, my life is just sort of in a wiggle right now. It's just not quite firing on all cylinders. But, but when I do, when I get that all straight, then I'm going to finally engage and do something kingdom meaningful. If I can just get all of these things lined out, all of these wrinkles ironed out, I'm going to be good to go. The trouble with that is that's never going to happen, ever. If you're waiting around for your life to be perfectly and properly how you plan it, you're never going to get there. And so you will be setting yourself up for a life full of futility and treading water, never actually going or or achieving anything. No, we're never going to have our lives completely the way we want them. I think the best way I can illustrate this is sort of like this. If you've ever ridden a kayak, it looks sort of like this. You're in the water. This kayak is, I think, one of the most ill-designed vessels for its purpose. And here you are, and you've been training, you've been working out, you've grown an epic beard, you've got all the gear, and here you are. And a kayak, if you've ever been in one, and if you have a low center of gravity like I do, they're notoriously difficult to maintain upright. But you use all of your core strength, you use your paddle, you use your neighbor, you use training wheels if they sold them, you use anything to keep that kayak upright because you don't want to flip over. But the reality is, you get the call from the doctor. You check your bank statement, you hear from your kid in college, and then this is what really most of our lives end up looking like. Yeah, that's sort of me on a generally daily basis. 
Like I have tried really hard to keep my kayak afloat, but really and truly, I am never able to achieve my own equilibrium. By the way, there was probably a time in society and culture when people generally were on a quest for truth. And I think at some level they still are. But really, truly, and practically, what I have found is people are on a quest for happiness. But even beneath that, they're on a quest for equilibrium. So many people feel like their world is just about to tip them over. And they will do anything they can to try to maintain some semblance of equilibrium. And if somebody else comes along and smacks their kayak with their oar, man, I just went totally volcanic. Or if I get that call from the doctor that says, yeah, the results are positive. And you think, positive, that's good, right? And they go, no, positive is bad which is why I've always been terrible at math. I've never understood that. The results are positive. It's, it's, it's bad news. And your kayak gets spun. And you think, what in the world? I thought, I thought that when I became a believer or when I went to church or when I got involved in some social cause, that my kayak was going to be completely maintaining equilibrium. And it doesn't work that way. So a lot of people are confused. Or worse, perhaps you are able to maintain some semblance of equilibrium, and then because you want to be a generally good person, you slap a Jesus fish on the back of your kayak, and you go, woohoo! And then the phone rings and your kayak spins, and you go, well, where were you on that one, Jesus? Hmm? I thought we had a deal here. I pray at Easter, and you shower me with blessings. We have a contract. And Jesus says, I'm not in the contract business. I'm in the covenant business. And by the way, it is never going to work that way. So with all of that said, here's going to be our big idea for the morning. Here's going to be the thrust that I hope reverberates with us. I had uh, dinner with someone this week and they said, oh, you pastors, oh my gosh, you try to do those things with alliteration and I hate that and it drives me crazy. So this one's for you. Here's our big idea. Exaltation emits equilibrium. That's right, it even starts with an E. So get that all over you. Exaltation emits equilibrium. In other words, the secret to stability is our praise, is our regular right recognition of our God. Exaltation emits equilibrium. So we're in the book of Philippians. Philippians, I'm going to start uh, in chapter 4, which means I need to give just a tiny bit of a run-up, just a little bit of an on-ramp. The book of Philippians, Paul writes to his favorite church in Philippi. It's the very first church in Europe. We owe our heritage as a Western civilization church to the church in Philippi. You might remember this church starts accidentally on the backswing. Paul didn't want to go to Europe. He wanted to go to Bithynia. Jesus said no. He wanted to go to Ephesus. God said no. Paul takes a nap. He has a dream. Someone from Macedonia says, please come and help. We're dying. He goes to Philippi. He meets three people, Lydia, a wealthy fashionista, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal civil servant jailer. And with these three people, Paul plants a church. <laughs> One of the greatest stories in the Bible. Never in any seminary class do they say, here's what you want to do. Find a fashionista, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal civil servant, and with that you start your church. And yet, Jesus has a better, bigger idea. He's with them maybe two weeks. He gets beaten up, run out of town, and as soon as he leaves, they send him a gift. A week later, they send him a second gift. So Paul writes the book of Philippians from jail in Rome during his first imprisonment as a thank you note 
Chapter one is all about, hey, listen, don't forget whose you are. Live lives worthy of the gospel, the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. Live your life persistently, daily, cognitively like that. Number two, chapter two is, make sure that your thinking, your mind, your attitude, your affections are like that of Jesus himself. Be characterized by humility and not entitlement. Chapter three, Paul says, because we have been saved, we have been justified, declared righteous, we are being sanctified, we're being conformed into his image, and wait, that's not all, we are also citizens of heaven. We carry gold passports. We are colonists of the kingdom of heaven. Man, this is a great little book. Chapter four. Now, beginning in verse one. Therefore, my brothers. Well, what's the therefore? The therefore is there because of all of the things that he has said thus far in chapters one, two, and three. You are a colonist of the kingdom of heaven. Now live your life accordingly. Paul will never, never say, because you believe the gospel and one day you're gonna die, and then go to heaven, won't that be jolly? He never, never says that because that's not biblical. He says, you are now presently a colonist of the kingdom of heaven. So adjust your thinking, your attitude accordingly. Tune your affections accordingly. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Paul says, literally, I feel it in my guts. I don't know how you've ever felt that strongly about somebody who's not your immediate family, but Paul has this deep parental pastoral sense in which he literally says, you make my kidneys hurt, splack noise. It's my innards and my guts. They ache when I think about you. He has that kind of affection for them. I love you so much, he says. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are. Reminds me of 3 John verse 4 where John says, Essentially, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Every apostle, every pastor, every parent wants this desperately. And Paul says, hey, little church that started accidentally on the backswing, I am crazy about you and I want your best. That's what it means to love someone, to want their best. And so Paul says, you are my crown, my Stephanos, the, the end of my race Yes, will be Jesus, but it'll also be you. And that's how a good leader feels about his people. Stand firm, thus. Stand firm. You don't have to charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. You certainly don't retreat, but you stand firm in whose you are and in what you are here to be. There's a reason when we trust Christ as our Savior, we don't instantly get raptured into glory because we are colonists of the kingdom of heaven. And while we are here, many of us experience a lack of equilibrium. And so now Paul's going to tell us how to maintain that. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then he says this, verse 2. I entreat Euodia, pleasant journey is her name. And I entreat Syntyche, pleasant acquaintance. Uh, not so much, because for 2,000 years, these two gals have been immortalized in Scripture as the cuckling hens that could not get along in church. I don't know if one insulted the other one's tater tot casserole. I don't know what happened, but there's a rift in this church already. It's just funny to me how this church begins, and then almost immediately there's this 
social friend nipping at one another thing that happens. And so Paul, to be fair and equitable, uses the verb for both of them. He doesn't just say, I urge Yodia and Syntyche. He says, I urge Yodia. And I urge Syntyche, both of them. I urge both of them to agree in the Lord. Such good leadership. He calls them to a higher thing. He doesn't just say, hey, listen, uh, let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's just forgive and forget. No, 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 no. He calls them to a great common denominator. You are to agree in the Lord. Think about who the Lord is, what he has done, not how she has knocked over your kayak. If you just dwell on how she's upset your kayak or how she upset your kayak, you're never going to find peace. So agree with one another, he says, in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know his name, help these women. I don't think that means shake them by the countenance. I think it means come alongside and arbitrate and help them out. Who have labored side by side. They have been at it for the sake of the gospel with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Yodia, Syntyche, you are colonists of the kingdom. You're not helping things by clucking at one another. Agree in the Lord. It's not just pretend that nothing ever happened. It is to forgive one another. What does that mean? To voluntarily pay the debt of the other. Yes, your kayak barrel rolled, and yes, it's her fault. But guess what? Yours was atoned for at the cross of Christ. You are in the Lord. Your names are written in the book of life, and they will never be blotted out. You are eternal beings now and already. Therefore, maintain the long view. It's not about your kayak rolling from time to time. It's going to. Or placing blame on her. She did it. Mm-hmm. And you got a little moist. You got a little, you got a little refreshed. Fantastic. Now forgive because you have been forgiven to voluntarily suffer for the sake of the other. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. So important. I will even say it again. Rejoice. Exult. Exalt. Think about who God is, what he has done in Christ. Dwell on the gospel, and that ought to produce and elicit in us a rejoicing. It does not mean we walk around like this freaky false happiness just with this strange face painted on. That's no, you can sell pencils at the airport if that's you. We're not talking about that. A legitimate, deep-seated recognition that, oh my goodness, I am forgiven, but not just forgiven. I am viewed through the finished work of Christ as God's favorite. There is nothing between me and him. So rejoice, Paul says. This is how to maintain your equilibrium. Regardless of what direction your kayak is pointing, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, this is an imperative, plural, rejoice. Because exaltation emits equilibrium. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is a massive group therapy kind of text. I bet if we have 10 different translations in here, we'll have a different word for that word reasonableness. Some of you will say gentle spirit. Some of you will say something different entirely. It's an impossibly difficult word to translate. Paul essentially says, verse 5, let your and the best way we could translate it, which would not make sense to us English readers, is let your radical even keelness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
He has gone. He is coming again. We do not know when, but know this, as sure as he lives, he is coming again. And so until he does, what you are to be characterized by with your spouse, with your family, with your church, with your community, with your coworkers, is your radical even keelness. Nothing shakes you, no matter the call, no matter the fender bender, no matter the what. Nothing shakes you. Your radical even keelness. Why can you be radically even keeled? Because the Lord is at hand. John Newton put it this way. He says, with this radical even keelness, we're able to endure the worst times and leave the best times. <laughs> I want to leave the worst times like I'm on fire. And when I get into the best times, whether it's just a sweet family time together at home or on vacation or, or doing a wedding, man, I just want to stay there forever because I just want to experience that as if that defines who I am. And then when I walk away from it, uh, I feel a sense of longing. But Newton's right. He says, no, no, no. The one with radical even keelness can endure the hard times and is able to leave the good times because he knows that's not all that there is. He maintains the long view. First Peter 3 puts it this way. Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There is an urgency. Our attitude and our affections matter immensely. We are to be known and characterized as a people of radical even keelness. That's what we're supposed to be about here. Well, he continues on and explains how that actually is going to happen in verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about the things that you can control. No, that's a terrible translation. It doesn't say that. Do not be anxious about anything. And the word Paul uses here means do not fear losing control of anything. <laughs> That's what anxiety is, the fear of losing control, when you actually control nothing. Some of you know deeply what anxiety is. Some of you are prone to anxiety attacks. And I'm not saying it's not a thing. I know that it is. It's real. But this is talking about do not be anxious. Do not allow the mindset to slip into your being that says, I'm afraid I'm about to lose control. Newsflash, you already have. And that's good news because you're grossly underqualified for the job of running your life, and so am I. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. And then he's going to give us four words of how we are to pray. Let me, let me explain these here, though, in just a moment. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's not that God doesn't know. God knows. But Paul's doing some amazing psychotherapeutic prescription here. It's genius. I'm convinced that if every single one of us could do Philippians 4, 6 in the way that it was intended, we would put about 80% of our LPCs out of business. Sorry, Tyler. <laughs> Philippians 4, 6 says, in everything with prayer and supplication. What, the way Paul is saying this is really sort of astonishing. When an event comes and you feel your kayak getting rocked, and you will, not you might, you will. Some of you are in it right now. When you do, you pray. 
You don't have to go to some special building. You don't have to assume some special pose. You don't have to say some special words. You pray to God as if he was actually a loving, compassionate, comforting father because he is. And here's how you pray, Paul says in verse six. It's not that we do prayer and then we do supplication and then we do, mm -mm. we pray with thanksgiving. That's the agency of the other three. It means this, when you pray, you thank God for every conceivable outcome. The doctor is going to call in two days and we're going to get the test results back. My God, I don't know what's going to happen. But if the results come back and the tests are positive and I'm not going to have her but for six more weeks, then I praise you because she's been the best. And I thank you for the time that we've had together. And I thank you for the time that we will have together. And I thank you for the witness and the testimony that her life will have been. I thank you. Or God, if the phone call comes and they tell us, you know what, it's, 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 it's a weird deal. It's gonna be about four years of protracted misery. I thank you, my God, for that. Because what that's going to mean is thus, for your kingdom, for our relationship, for the heightened focus. We thank God for every conceivable outcome. Or when the phone call comes, the doctor says, guess what, Mr. Barton? This is hypothetical, incidentally, so don't attack my wife. Guess what, Mr. Barton? The test results are negative. There's nothing there. I thank God for that. So that no matter what happens when the phone rings, I will have already thanked God for it and I won't be rocked by any of it. Do you see? And we become known as a people of radical even keelness. Those with hope. As Matt said earlier, there is hope in nothing else. And the rest of the world suddenly realizes, whoa, there are a people who are not characterized by a political bent, but by hope, but by a radical even keelness. I met an old friend uh, three, four weeks ago, and I said, hey, how's it going? He said, great. I said, where are you? He told me. I said, are you involved in a church? He said, yes, and it's a great church. He said, man, we've got people on both sides of the political aisle. I said, really? He said, yeah, we've got Republicans and Tea Party. It's like, <laughs> oh, man, okay. Okay, that, mm, okay, well, I don't want to be known as that. I want to be known as the church who lives lives worthy of the gospel, whose people have a radical even keelness. That's Philippians 4, verse 6. And so, one of our applications we're just going to do right in line. The first one goes like this. Prayerful and praiseful meditation is the opposite of worry. Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to meditate. I don't know how to pray. Yes, you do. It's the opposite of worry. All that stuff that you spend time thinking about it and wringing your hands and what if, what if, what if, what if. Great. Do it prayerfully. What if? And you thank God for it. What if, and you thank God for it? What if, and you thank God for it? And before you know it, you look down and your kayak is in concrete. We have a sign <laughs> on our refrigerator. It's on the left-hand freezer door. If you come over, you'll see it. Uh, that I'm pretty sure, I'm not really sure how it got there, but I'm pretty sure my wife put it there for me because it's right at eye level for me. And it says, have you prayed about it as much as you have talked about it? And I went by the other day with a pencil and I said, no! I mean, it was a question, and I just felt like I had to be honest, and so I said no. But we ought to pray about it more than we talk about it, which is incredibly convicting for someone who is, by the way, a verbal processor. I know you didn't know that. I have a slight talking problem. And so for me to pray about it more than talk about it would be to wear out the risen Lord Jesus, all right? But that's what we are called to. Verse 7, and if we do that, if we 
Thank God for every conceivable circumstance when we sense our kayak getting nudged. Nudged. Watch what happens in verse seven. And the peace of God. Ah, see, we like to quote this verse to people in hospital rooms, but that verse comes after verse six. The peace of God. There, there's something that produces that in us. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. We can't explain it away. I don't know why I have such a peace about this. I feel like my kayak is in a hurricane and I'm, I'm okay. It's all right. I have the long view. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that will guard your hearts and your minds, your thinking and your feeling, your attitude and your affections will be guarded because you will have become practiced at thanking God for every conceivable outcome. He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, I love Pastor Paul because this is like the third time he has said finally and he's not done yet. You feel that way sometimes, I know. But stick with us, we're gonna land this plane here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Paul's gonna help us to dwell on the right things, our thinking, our feeling, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. And I can, I just, listen, this, it's time for some vulnerability. I'm pretty sure I'm offended and disgusted at how quickly my mind will descend into depravity. It takes no time at all. I was praying on the way over here and somebody was driving like 17 miles an hour in the left-hand lane. And if that was you, God bless you. I thank God for everything that's going to happen to you, I do. But I didn't in that moment. I said out loud, you know there's a right lane and the long skinny paddle on the right is what you're looking for and I'm in the middle of praying. I actually said that out loud. Thank God my family was not in my vehicle. I said it out loud and I thought, oh, they're gonna come to Bethel downtown, I know it. I know it. They're gonna be like, hey, I saw you drive by. Yes, I was praying for you. Yeah. It doesn't take much to flick me off my high holy hill, all right? I was in the middle of praying for you this morning and for God to speak through this passage and I'm shaking my fist at this guy next to me. It's incredibly convicting. So it's really fun to get up here and to preach after something like that happens. So I'm just telling you, it doesn't take much for our depravity to fall. But when a group of people Praise God, thanking him for every conceivable outcome becomes known as a group of radical, even-keeled people. Then the church becomes something incredible, which is our second point of application in line. The church exists to do things that, can't be un that cannot be done without God's special supernatural grace. That's what happens when we do those things, when we become those things, then the church does things that cannot be explained otherwise. That's what the church will be, is in fact, and I wish I could tell you all of the stories, I can't, of where that is actually happening in our midst. It'll move you to tears, it does us all the time. But that is actually happening. So again in verse seven, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, verse eight, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, exaltation emits equilibrium. Set your hearts and minds on things above. And then Paul says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Whew. Because Paul says, 
I have a radical even keelness. He'll say otherwise. I have learned the secret, whether in much or in little, in health or in sickness and heat and cold and starvation and plenty, all of these things, I have learned a radical even keelness. So Paul says, you look at me. And incidentally, that's what the church needs. More people who will say, I am committed to a life in the long haul of a radical even keelness. Practice these things and then, <laughs> the most astonishing thing you could ever hear in your whole world ever. Verse 7, the peace of God will be with you. But at the end of verse 9, guess what? It gets even better. The God himself of peace will be with you. The ultimate question of humankind, how can I be with God? How can I have God? How can I know God? It starts with our hearts and our minds. See, our mind is the scene of the crime very often. But Paul says, so, so diligently, take captive every thought. Take captive every feeling and say, is this worthy of my death-proof king? And when it's not, and there will come times like that, say, I, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. Throw it at the foot of the cross. Trust that it is already paid for. Which brings me to my third and final point of application, and it goes like this. We wander because we do not worship. We do not regularly and rightly recognize our Redeemer. We treat the Lord as if He's only interested in us between nine and noon on a Sunday. But when we worship 24-7, we will even begin to see a worshipful attitude emerge even in our dream life. Not that that's authoritative, it's not. I'm just telling you, that stuff begins to even come out. And when we're not doing that, when we're not regularly, rightly recognizing our Redeemer, we wonder. And we begin to feel like our kayak is all out of spilkus. That's a technical term for kayaking in case you want to look that up. We begin to feel like we're about to get knocked over. But what if? What if the people sitting in this room this hour and the people sitting in this room next hour became a people known for their radical even keelness? Would that not be such a beacon, an attractive draw to this community? Because I can tell you, having spent enough time now in the center of the city, there are people who are desperately seeking equilibrium. What if those outside these walls had access to that? I'm just going to tell you prayerfully as, as the staff and I begin to continue to plan and to pray and to think through, we believe that God is setting us up increasingly in the center of the city to be a place where people can come, hear the truth of the gospel, receive lo the Lord Jesus Christ, and be the beneficiaries of peace and of equilibrium. So I want to encourage you to be mindful. Yes, I know that it's summer. But we are so excited about what we think the Lord is going to do in the center of our city with these, his people. See, we don't get to live a life where we try to go about our day always simply getting it all together. If that's your life's ambition, you're always going to be disappointed. And I would, I would save you from that. What we come to scripture to find is it's not about us getting saved, slapping a Jesus fish on our kayak. It's hearing the still, sweet, small voice of Jesus say, <laughs> I am the kayak. Don't you see? I am the kayak. I took the storm. I took the roll. And I didn't survive it. You're not even the pilot of the kayak. 
You just get to go along for the ride, and sometimes we're going to roll, and sometimes you need that roll. But I am the kayak. I haven't slapped a fish on the kayak. I am the kayak. And so I'm just going to tell you again, transparently, pastorally, these last several weeks, I have had to tell myself, wait a minute, I am Eric, not in Christ, which I am, but functionally and practically, I am Eric in kayak. Because I have found myself so often trying to do this, row, row, row my boat gently to the shore, only to get barreled over and be gasping for air. And wait, wait, wait. I am in the kayak. He is my kayak. And I have equilibrium. And then and only then am I any good to our staff, to our people, to my family, to our community. So I invite you to exalt and to enjoy and experience equilibrium. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.